We're Anthem Church. Thanks for checking out our podcast. For all the info you need, visit anthemforall.org and follow at Anthem Church Chicago. Hearts cry. A journey through the book of Psalms. Now, we're not going to go through every psalm. Uh, We'll save that for another series, but we've chosen a few psalms to go through over the next month and a bit. And we're looking at the heart's cry. Now, because this is the first sermon in the series, I have the responsibility of sharing a brief introduction to the series. So while I was preparing my message, I got really into that intro. And uh, there was so much good to say about the Psalms that I realized like, I had so much content that I was running out of time for Psalm 27, which is what we're looking at today. So I parked the, the, the introduction to the series on the side, and then I started delving into Psalm 27. And then I got so into Psalm 27 that I was like, I'm not going to be able to fit my introduction in. And uh, there's just so much good in Psalm 27 that I wasn't going to, I thought I'd be able to join the two, but I can't. So I'm introducing the series this morning by not introducing the series. No pressure on who's preaching next week, but you feel free to give another introduction on, on that series. I think, it's, I think it's Steve. I'll give a, little, I'll give a little, little intro, but I really want us to get into Psalm 27 this morning. It's really, really beautiful. Psalms are prayers and worship and songs to God. Uh, Not only are they songs of adoration, songs of worship and and prayers, they they give us the vocabulary that we can use when we pray to God. And I'm excited for this series because I, I believe God wants to do a few things in our hearts. I believe he wants to heal and restore the brokenness inside of us. And uh, you may be uncomfortable already as I say the brokenness inside of us because no one wants to think that they're broken. No one wants to think that anything inside them is wrong or faulty. But the truth is we all have these areas in our lives that are not broken. Why? Because we haven't reached the end yet. We have not been made completely new yet. That's what our hearts and souls long for that day when we will see Jesus face to face and he will give us our new glorified bodies and sin and sickness and shame will completely be dealt with. Yes, he dealt with them on the cross, but we're in this in-between stage where we're working out that, what the Bible calls sanctification, the process by which we're made holy. And uh, this is what I love about the Psalms, is it gives us the vocabulary to use when we approach God. And we're going to be looking at the cry of the hearts and, and giving the, our hearts cry vocabulary and expression, giving attention to the things deep inside of us. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at titles like The Cry of the Heart in Sorrow, The Cry of the Heart in Thanksgiving, The Cry of the Heart in Battle, The Cry of the Heart in Praise. And this morning, I'd like to look at The Cry of the Heart for Intimacy. The Cry of the Heart for Intimacy. I'd encourage you to open your hearts this morning and over the rest of this series, and, and say, God, I, I'm, I'm letting you in, all access, VIP, VIP pass, backstage, into every part of my life. Search me, O oh God, test my anxious thoughts, see if there's any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting, as David says in Psalm 139. Open your hearts to God. And, and it's a vulnerable thing. It's a vulnerable thing to come to God and say, do what you want, Lord. Let's read Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, when my enemies and my foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. 
One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his tabernacle, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, O Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says, if you seek his face, your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servants away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, O God, my Savior. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, breathing out violence. I am still confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart. And wait for the Lord. Lord, we love you this morning and we worship you and we say, let your word come and speak to us. Let your word come and move us. Let your word come and shape us and fashion us and form us. Let your word come and do what only your word can do inside of us. Thank you that your word will fulfill all that it has promised and all that it has set out to do, it will achieve. And I pray for that this morning. Help us understand what you were speaking about when you gave this psalm to us. Let's look at this in a bit of detail. I'd like us to go through some lines in more detail than others, but there are four parts to the psalm. Part one is David's confidence in God, and that's from uh, verses one to three. Part two is his love of intimacy and communion with God, and that's uh, verses four to six. Part three is his prayer, his honest prayer to God, verses seven to to 12. And part four is an exhortation and a statement of faith uh, for others to follow, and that's the last two verses in verses 13 and 14. Now, when you read uh, the book of Psalms, especially the Psalms that David has written, very often you can tie them up with life experiences recorded earlier on in Scripture that David went through. So you read the story of David, and then you read the Psalm of what, what, what he was going through when he wrote that, and it really ties in, and it's really beautiful. But this Psalm, we, we don't get that. The Psalm doesn't tell us uh, when it was written, uh, why it was written, how it was written, what David was going through. It just says it was written by David. But by reading it, we can assume four things and piece together a picture of what David was going through when when he wrote it. The first thing we can assume is that he was pursued by enemies. Verses 2 to 3 says, enemies and foes attack. Later on, it says, he's surrounded when my enemy surrounds me. Secondly, he's shut out from the house of the Lord. In verse 4, we see how he longs to be in God's house. Thirdly, we see that he is experiencing separation or uh, rejection from loved ones. It says his mother and father have forsaken him. And in verse 4, we read that his, uh, sorry, number 4, in verse 12, we read that his uh, reputation is at stake. He is open to slander and, and false witnesses are breathing out violence. We can conclude then that this is not a good time. This is not a safe time for David. This is not a mountaintop experience in David's life. David's going through some stuff. 
I don't know about you, but when I think of David, David was this amazing king who established Israel and, and the kingdom of Israel under him and under his son was the most ever was established. And I look back at David and he was this warrior king, this amazing songwriter, this amazing worshiper, this amazing lover of God's presence, but this amazing leader as well. I mean, as a creative, I, I love all the, the creative side of things, but I, I battle with the structural and organizational side of things. But here's David flowing in the creativity, flowing in the rulership and reigning. He's like the perfect worship leader. He's amazing. And he's a king, and he's leading, and and he's extending God's kingdom, and he's just such an amazing picture. But very often when we read Scripture, we, we perhaps think of them in their fullest, in their extreme, in their most mature state, and we don't see the journey that got them there. And this is what I love about this series through the book of Psalms is the Psalms deal with that gray space, that, that awkward moments in between the promise and the promised land. And now when we read, for example, in the book of Acts, you just see signs and wonders. The Holy Spirit is poured out. The church is birthed in holy fire, and there's miracles, signs and wonders, and thousands are added and baptized, and it's just like revival, and we read it, and it's just like every page is action and action and action, and what we don't realize is that the book of Acts is written over years and years. And when we read it, we get this quick, like, HD view of what's going on in the church, but it's very specific, and we don't see the moments in between where perhaps Peter got up and preached and no one got saved, where perhaps Paul prayed for someone and they weren't healed, and the space in between where you see the promise and the promised land and that awkward process in between, which is not comfortable. David's in this place. I think of Abraham, who God comes to him and says, I'm going to give you a son, your your your." Uh, your your children are going to outnumber the stars in the sky, and then it's 25 years later of gray space in between the promise and the promised land before Isaac, the promise, is born. I think of Joseph, who has these dreams from God about ruling and reigning, and his brothers and family bowing down to him because he's leading, and he's a young man at the time, and it's maybe 15 to 16 years later after being thrown in prison and being sold and rejected by his brothers that finally the fruition of the word comes true. The space between. Maybe some of us find the space, us in that space between the promise and the promise. And God has promised, but we don't see the promise. In all honesty, the building, God has promised, and we can see glimpses of it, but we're in this, this difficult transition. It's not comfortable, and David's in this place right here. And man, when you read his response, it's like, man, I failed in my response Man, I, I wish I could be like David, because you read like we've just read, and despite the fact that he's going through this difficult time, that he's surrounded by danger and potential harm, physical danger, spiritual danger, emotional danger, his reputation is at stake, and he's just powering through on fire, passionate fervor, just wow. And that inspires me and challenges me to the core. Let's look through this psalm in a bit more detail and work out what God is saying to us this morning. Let's look at part one, David's confidence in God, verses one to three. The Lord is my light and my salvation. In ancient times, there was one source of light, the sun, and the other was fire or a lamp. During the day, obviously, you cannot look at the sun, and it's bright, and it it forces out the darkness. At night, perhaps you've got a lamp. Either way, in the light times and in the dark times, God is our light, not a light, but the light and our salvation, the one who saves. Darkness cannot come against us because he is our light. Look at this confidence in God. Whom shall I fear? 
The Lord is the stronghold of my life. A stronghold was that place within the city, within the gates, that if the enemy had managed to break through the gates, there was a strong tower in the middle, the stronghold where people would run into, and you couldn't get into it. And he says, God, that's you. You're my stronghold. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, when my enemies and my foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. He acknowledges that he has enemies. He acknowledges they're out to kill him, but they will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then will I be confident. How is it that he is so confident in his God? In life, I find that I'm tempted to put my confidence in temporary things and in people. And temporary things, as we know, are temporary and change and are vulnerable to outside forces. And things change and I get disappointed. People let me down and I'm disappointed. But when I hope and trust and confidence is in God, the unshakable rock, the true light and true salvation, we will never be shaken or disappointed. And David reminds us of this. That it is against the backdrop of darkness that what is light truly shines. The Lord is my light and my salvation. I was trying to think of an analogy to help us understand what confidence in God is like. And uh, I, I was thinking of superstars, like these super sportsmen. We've all had a favorite sports person or sports team, and usually it's the winning team. I mean, you've got your diehards who support the losing team, and it's like, when do you jump ship? I don't know. Uh, but this team is amazing. It's winning. It's got all the trophies on paper. It's the best. It's just phenomenal. And then something happens, which will happen to every greatest of all times sort of players that maybe they'll get an injury or maybe they'll take a knock or maybe something will go wrong and they'll lose a match that they shouldn't have lost and suddenly they lose confidence. You look at them on paper and they've got all the right stats. You talk to them about the game and they know exactly what they should be doing. But when it comes to the game, the pass goes wide. The tackle is missed. Vision is lost, and it's like they're shadows of their former glory. They're like these phantom superstars. And I wonder how many of us are like these phantom superstars in our relationship with God, where we look back on our, on our walk with God, and there were times when we were powering on in God's kingdom, and our confidence was fully in Him. But somehow, along the way, life maybe just upset us or gave us a knock, and life does that, and, and, and we lost confidence in God. And suddenly those verses that were so deep inside of our hearts have shifted and are now in our heads. And, and we, we know them, but we don't believe them. Or we believe them for others, and suddenly we start hating the game, which is life, and blaming the coach who is God. And it's just, what's happened is we've lost confidence in God. Through the series, I believe God wants to restore confidence in Him. And it's from this point, I've never let you down, and I never will let you down. Lift your eyes and look at me. Like David, find your confidence and strength in me. Application question for this week while we're waiting on God. Where does my confidence lie? Ask yourself that question. What am I putting my trust in right now today? I suppose a way to answer that question is when I'm talking about X, Y, and Z, this is when I feel most strong. This is when I feel most in control. This is when I feel like I'm sorted. Question number two, how can I ensure that my confidence is in God? 
Because God has this way of allowing things in our lives to be shaken because he knows the best thing for us is for our confidence to be in him. Part two, his love of intimacy and communion with God. Let me pause and let me say that I believe David's confidence, as challenging and inspiring and, and as beautiful it is, I think flows from a place of intimacy with God. That's why this sermon is about the cry, or the heart's cry for intimacy, because I believe David modeled intimacy for us. And as a result of his intimate walk with God, he was confident. It wasn't out of a place of confidence and having it all together that he now was able to have this intimate walk and relationship with God. It's the other way around. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his tabernacle will I sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Note the tense, I will, I will, I will, which means I'm not in the place where I can, but that's what I'm going to do. And that's what I'm going to try to do until I get there. Let's remember his context. He's pursued by enemies. He's shut out from the house of the Lord. He's experiencing separation from loved ones, forsaken by his close family. He's subject to slander, yet he comes to God and asks for one thing. Just when the confidence was like challenging and inspiring me, I, I read this intimacy and, and this desire for God's presence, and I'm like, Lord. This morning, if we could ask God for one thing, and perhaps we've already asked him for that one thing, what, what was it? What is it? David, in this dark place, says, God, give me one thing. One thing. All I want is God, he says. There was a preacher in the 1800s uh, by the name of Charles Spurgeon. He was known as the Prince of Preachers. And he said this of Psalm 27, verse 4. He said, One thing, divided aims tend to distraction, weakness, disappointment. The man of one book is eminent. The man of one pursuit is successful. Let all our affections be bound up in one affection, and that affection set upon heavenly Things. I believe God is lifting our eyes through this series to, to fix them upon him. Take the world, but give me Jesus. To be caught up in the wonder and beauty of him, that the one thing we desire and need above all else, the one thing that will answer the question that, that's burning in your heart this morning is the one thing is an intimate relationship with God through Jesus Christ. There's this amazing account, encounter in, in Luke chapter 10 where Jesus is at Mary and Martha's house for dinner. I don't know about you, if, but if Jesus was coming to dinner, there'd be a lot of, whoa, we've got to get this place ready. This is Jesus. And there's two sisters, Martha and Mary. And Martha's getting the house ready. I mean, she's, she's hosting the dinner. And Mary's just sitting at Jesus' feet, loving on him, listening to him. And Martha has enough and comes to Jesus. And in Luke 10, verse 41 to 42, she complains to Jesus, and Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things. But how's this? But only one thing is needed. David says it in Psalm 27, one thing I desire of the Lord, this one thing I seek, that I may dwell in your house and gaze upon your beauty. Mary at the feet of Jesus, and Jesus says, Martha, one thing is required. The food will sort itself out. The plans will sort itself out. What is required, the one thing is intimacy with me. 
How many of us today are worried and upset about many things, but the one thing needed is to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and seek Him alone? One thing I ask, this is what I seek. This is why for me the psalm is about intimacy, the heart's cry for intimacy with God, and that's where David gets this confidence from. But what does it mean to have an intimate relationship with Jesus? You hear guys say things like, yeah, faith, uh, Christianity is not about religion, it's about faith and a relationship with Jesus. You hear people say things like, you can have an intimate relationship with God. If you're visiting us, or if you, maybe you're just inquiring this morning, or perhaps you've just started on your journey with God, and, and at first God, this force out there somewhere ruling the galaxies, and now someone says you can have a relationship, that's a relationship with, with God who is all-powerful and all-knowing and everywhere. How does that work? To hear that God wants relationship with us is quite interesting. No other religion says that, to my knowledge. All other religions are about us trying to work our way up to the supreme being, to keep the supreme being happy, or to twist the supreme being's arm to help us in our lives to get what we want in this life. But here, God wants relationship with us. What does that mean? And I think the, the way to understand that intimate relationship that God designed us for, we need to go to the beginning in the book of Genesis. And I want, I want to take a, a look at Adam and Eve and their relationship with God and what was lost when they sinned and reverse engineer it to work out what intimacy and relationship truly is. Stay with me. So in the beginning, in the book of Genesis, we read that God creates Adam and Eve and places them in this garden, this space of heavenly beauty, this place which had access to his presence. We read that Adam worked and walked with God. We see that Adam and Eve talked with God. Here we have this beautiful picture of God and mankind in this beautiful, intimate dance and relationship. It's quite otherworldly, if you think about it. But what happened at the fall? God said, don't eat of this tree And they disobeyed and they ate. And immediately they did three things which represent what happens when sin enters in and breaks down that relationship. Three things that define what intimacy is not. And the first thing they do is they run. The second thing they do is they hide in the trees. And the third thing they do is they cover themselves. They sew these fig leaves together because they realize that they're naked. So they had this intimate walk and relationship with God where they walked with him, talked with him, worked with him. They sinned and now suddenly they run, they hide, and they cover. They run, they hide, they cover. They run, they hide, they cover. We run, we hide, and we cover. And since Adam and Eve, and even today, we run, we hide, we cover. We run from God, we hide from him, and we we cover what we don't want him to see. We run, we hide, we cover. So if we reverse engineer it from this, we could say that intimacy and what God created us for is when we reverse what went wrong. When we run to God, leave nothing hidden and uncover all before him. Let's read that again. Intimacy is when we run to God, leave nothing hidden and uncover all before him. And even as I say that, can you picture that sort of relationship with God? That we would be able to come to him and all our fears and all our rejection and all the stuff that we've done wrong and we'd be able to say, God, you know it all anyway, but here I am open before you. I'm an open book. But I think what happens, to be honest, is 
We run, we hide, and we cover. We like the idea of having access to God, and we come to God, and we receive Jesus, and we, we say, yes, I'll take that access to, to, to the God who is God, and there is no other God. And, and what a beautiful exchange. He takes my sin, my shame on the cross, and he enables me to, to live a beautiful life in his presence, and that, that access, he gives me access to him. But I think what happens in our walk with God is, is this, is like, you know those turnstiles where you walk one way, and you go through, but you can't go the other way? So you have access, and if someone wants to have access the other way, it's like, whoa, sorry, no access. And that's what we do with God. We, we, we take the access that he gives us, but we, we fear him and we fear his response. So we hold him at arm's length and say, God, take my time, take my money, but don't take my sexuality. Don't touch that God. That's, that's a mess. Take my gifts, take my energy, but just don't take my finances, God. That's, that's, that's untouchable. And these uncomfortable areas where perhaps we struggle and we think, God's, God's going to be angry with me when he sees what I've done because I'm angry with me for what I've done. And the shame that causes us to run from God, to run, to hide, to cover, to run, to hide, to cover, to run, to hide, to cover. And while I was putting this together, I, I, I felt God say this to me. I felt him ask the question, why, why do you think I went looking for Adam and Eve because what happens is they run, they hide, they cover, and God comes in the cool of the day in Genesis chapter 3, and he says, Adam, where are you? And immediately I start thinking, well, he's got to sort the problem out. They've gone and messed it all up. He's got to come and fix it. Got to sort them out, reverse the curse. Got to just fix them out, sort them out, just get them online again, get them on track. And he says to them, what have you done? It's like, yeah, God wants to know what you've done. You've got to come to him, just sort it out, just confess it all so he can deal with the rubbish and just get you back on track. And I felt God just begin to share this with me, that why did I ask where he was? Perhaps it was time for our walk together. Adam, where are you? It's, it's, it's time for relationship. It's time for communion. It's time for intimacy. Adam, where, where are you? Adam, why are you hiding? Adam, what have you, what have you done? And it's about love and a God who reaches down and says, I want to be with you. I'm not angry with you. I know exactly what went down, but I want to be with you and you've got to come to me. I have a friend who used to say this. He says, intimacy is into me, he sees. And that same friend would say this. He said, God can't heal what we don't reveal. And at first I was like, God can do anything. He's God. If, he, if there was something God couldn't do, he wouldn't be God because God is God and he can do anything. He's all-powerful. Don't limit God. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> My God's bigger than that. But if you think about it, it's not because God is unable. He has the ability. It's not because God doesn't desire it. He does desire it. But when I'm sick... And there is a doctor that I can go to, but I refuse to go. The doctor has the ability to fix me up, has the means, has the desire to make me healthy. But if I don't get into that doctor's presence and get myself in a place where I can receive that, the doctor can do nothing for me. And it's the same thing with God. It's like we've got to open up before him and we've got to come to him knowing that he's meeting us with love and he wants to mend us. And that very thing that is so broken inside of us that we, we think he's going to be angry about, he knows about already. In Psalm 139, David goes on to say, You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise and perceive my thoughts from afar. 
You discern my coming out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. All my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. He goes on to end by saying, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's an offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Run, hide, and cover. Run, hide, and cover. I've been reading this book by Peter Scazzaro called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And he says this. He says, when we deny our pain, losses, and feelings year after year, we become less and less human. We transform slowly into empty shells with smiley faces painted on them. God cannot heal what we do not reveal. Some applications. Uh, let's just go back to intimacy. What we were designed for is a relationship with God where we run to God, leave nothing hidden, and uncover all before him. And he heals and mends us and makes us whole. This week, how can I practically grow in intimacy? What areas of my life do I feel I need to hide and cover and run from? <laughs> how can I allow God in to heal me? These are questions I'm asking myself this week. Because there's not one of us in this room who is not broken and faulty in some way. We like to think we are. We like to pretend and run from God and pretend it never happened. But you know what? It happened. And our loving Father in heaven wants to heal us and mend us. And that's the gospel this morning. That's the message of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, giving us access to God, access to the healer, so that we can walk whole like David. One thing I desire. An ending, uh, the third part of this is his open and honest prayer. And uh, to be honest, prayer is something we all feel we should grow in. Uh, to be honest, I'm being very vulnerable and honest here. In all my years of knowing God and serving him, I've never had one week where I've been like, wow, man, surely prayed enough this week. Got to ease up on the prayer. Wow. <laughs> Good job. Woo-hoo. It's like prayer is one of those things we all fail at. We all feel we're useless at it. It's like, what do I say to God? He knows it anyway. And like, I've got to open my heart and show God what I've done wrong. And it's just like, oh, this is, a, oh, this is hard. What? The book of Psalms offers prayers for God's people in a language that can truly express the wide range of human expression and emotion. Psalms helps us pray and find the right vocabulary to talk with God. It helps give voice to the experience of being human. Eugene Peterson, he uh, wrote the interpretation of the Message Bible, and uh, he's a modern thought leader in the church, said this, Help and thanks are our basic prayers, but honesty and thoroughness don't come quite as spontaneously. (laughs) It's a great quote. He goes on to say, Prayer is not what good people do when they're at their best. Like, my week was a good one. I got a few hours of prayer, and I'm growing. But prayer is the means by which our language becomes honest, true, and personal in response to God. It is the means by which we get everything out in the open before God. And I take a few moments to just read his prayer with the earthiness that David wrote with it, the openness and honesty before God. He says, Hear my voice when I call, O Lord. He's not saying, Hear my voice because. He feels like God is hearing his voice. He's saying, hear my voice, because he feels like God is not hearing his voice. Be merciful to me and answer me. He has a history of God answering his prayer, but he's in this place where he's saying, God, answer me, because 
It doesn't feel like God's answering him. My heart says if you seek his face, your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. God, right now, it feels like I can't see your face. It feels like you're hiding your face from me. This last week, I was praying and working something through with God, and just before I knew it, these words rolled off my tongue. God, you failed me. And immediately, I was expecting, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I'll never fail you. I'm perfect. You're not. You're a loser. You're a failure. Get yourself right. And immediately, I felt this beautiful peace from God, and it said, keep going. Keep opening up. I'll never fail you. And as I said it, I felt like an idiot, but I knew that God heard my heart. Do not hide your face from me. Do not reject me, O God. He's facing rejection. His mother and father, he says, have rejected him. He's saying, God, don't you reject me too. Obviously, God won't. We know the scriptures. We we know the verses. But God doesn't give us these verses to make us feel guilty about what we're feeling He gives us these verses so that we can aim our feelings at what we're going through and remind our feelings of who God is and what he has promised. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. I kind of read that with a bit of, even though they've forsaken me, God, you'll receive me, right? Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me in a straight path. Why? Because the path in front of me is crooked. There's people attacking me spiritually, emotionally. I'm in trouble, God. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes, as if that were an option. For false witnesses rise up against me, breathing out violence. There's just this earthiness and this honesty before God, and he's there because he has this intimate walk with God. From his intimacy flows this confidence in his God, but also there's this brokenness and this this area where he can just be open before God, and he knows God is not going to turn him away. An ending. Maybe some things to think about this week is, maybe describe your current vocabulary of praise. Does it tend to be on, help me God, thanks, see you later? Or do we have the vocabulary that actually accesses where our heart's at? The series is called The Heart's Cry. And to be honest, I feel a disconnect between my heart and my head. I don't know how to give vocabulary to my heart. That's why I'm so excited about this series through the book of Psalms, through this gray space in between but the promise and the promised land, that God can show me how to approach him and interact with him and love him and pray to him and worship him. How can you practically be more open and honest with God in prayer this week? I'm going to end it there, and I'd love to pray for us. I wonder if you don't mind closing your eyes and I'm going to bleed in front of the Lord. I feel I've been bleeding all morning. It's so easy to be that hollow, that hollow person, God, with a smile painted on the outside. It's easier to be that than to come to you and allow you to deal with the emptiness inside. And God, I pray that we would be open, that we would be vulnerable before you this week, that We wouldn't be so confident in ourselves and confident in our ability to run and hide and cover that we don't allow you in. I pray for anyone here this morning who maybe has not yet put their faith in you, who is maybe searching and inquiring that through this morning and through the message, they've they've heard that you're a God of love who intimately, who, who, who desires and seeks and pursues intimate relationship with them, even though they've broken your laws and fallen short, because we all have. 
And thank you that it's in you pursuing us even when we're in the wrong because of your love for us and your, your love and desire to mend us and make us whole again. I pray for those who are going through very difficult times in between the promise and the promised land, Lord Jesus, where the giants are raging around them. I pray that they would find their confidence in you. And that despite that, they would know, like Psalm 23 says, in the presence of my enemies, the Lord has set a table before me, and they would feast on your goodness and on your righteousness this week. Thank you that David ends the psalm. I am confident that I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Let that be the echo of our hearts this week, no matter what we go through. And Lord Jesus, I just pray that you would be glorified in our lives this week. We worship you, Lord, and we run to you this morning. We uncover all before you, and we hide nothing. Amen. Thanks again for listening. To stay up to date, follow at Anthem Church Chicago and visit us, anthemforall.org. Anthem Church, all of Jesus for everyone.